good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another episode of The Other Side of Midnight with Richard Hoagland. My name is Jonathan Womack. I'm your host tonight. Richard's internet is down. As many of you know, he lives on the side of a mountain in the middle of the desert, and uh, he often has these internet issues come about. And so, unfortunately, he won't be here tonight. And I, I know he lives for these shows, and it, you know, it, uh, it, it, it hurts him to not be able to be here. You know how it is when you lose your own internet. It's like, oh my God. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'll sit in tonight, and uh, we have a wonderful lineup of guests for you tonight uh, with all varied backgrounds, but similar interest and some wonderful uh, experience and knowledge that they're going to share with us that we hope will help improve all of our lives. So with that said, uh, we have no news items, so we're going to get right to the show. And my first guest tonight is Russell Targ. As many of you know, Russell is the co-founder of the Stanford Research Institute, where he and Hal Putoff uh, put together a program to study ESP. Russell uh, was a laser physicist before he had a course correction and got into the metaphysical studies, which all kind of uh, stemmed from his teenage years as a magician. Um, so, Russell, are you there? Welcome to the other side of midnight. You'd be amazed how many people were teenage magicians. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of people in parapsychology, in fact, were got into the field because of things they had seen on the stage when they were doing fake magic. Then they got into real magic. Really? I, you're the only one I've heard of about that, but you say there are others. Well, Arthur Hastings, who's no longer with us, was a excellent magician and Dean Radin was a yep. proficient magician ah hmm. and and another and Daryl Bem Daryl often presents magic at parapsychology shows so we shouldn't be losing our credibility by believing things that are shown to us by other magicians and as Arthur C. Clarke said, uh, I believe it's his fourth law, uh, any sufficiently advanced technology will seem like magic to a lesser evolved uh, race. So aliens would come down from the sky and, and they would just seem magical to us. Yeah, I have a magic trick that I did starting as a child to give people a warning not to believe, not to think that everything they see is true. It's a very simple card trick. You say in magic, there's the effect, and then there's what's really going on. The effect is that I shuffle a deck of cards. You get to shuffle a deck of cards. You fan them out in your own hand, choose one, memorize the card, and give me the deck back, and I tell you your card. Now, that's basically impossible to do if what occurs is what actually happened. So what I described is what you think is happening. And a magician has to sell you the story of the card trick that he's doing. Do you really cut the cards? Is that's really what's happening? Am I really shuffling the cards? Do you really get a free choice of the cards in your hand? The answer to all those questions is no. But a magician has to use misdirection so that you will believe what he wants you to believe. And people who are skeptical about ESP research are very frightened that ESP researcher will be deceived by tricky characters who come into their laboratory and know more about sleight of hand and magic than they do. So my principal... Uh, prowess for getting money for the government from CIA is not that I was a laser scientist or not that I studied psychology in college, but that I was a magician and that I promised them that I was not going to be deceived 
by any trickster who walks in the laboratory. Because everyone is always afraid that those guys with glasses and white coats are going to be tricked, and then everybody will be very embarrassed. Well, yes, I find that uh, some scientists are not spiritual, and then other scientists are. Some of them lack something, and they're just very... Like, who is the guy... Uh, he's got a book that was a, a bestseller where uh, he would tell you, he would claim all day long, he would argue with you that none of this uh, metaphysical stuff is real until he had his own experience and he found himself, um, you know, he died and he went to heaven and that's that's what it took and now he's a firm believer and he will argue all day long that this stuff is real so it's funny how so he's he, arguing from the from heaven that it's real no he came back and then he wrote a book about his experience i can't think of his name if i said his name you'd know him because the book was a, a huge seller but um yeah he's just one example and I find that too. I I worked with scientists uh, when I was at Harvard for 10, 11 years there. I, I worked with, um, you know, the cosmologist and scientist and mind-brain people. And so I, you know, I tend to sum people up spiritually and I found some of them were just, had no real metaphysical mind to them where others uh, were absolutely spiritual and they followed the science and that's kind of the way i am i'm been going out of body all my life but i see it as scientific and have always had that perspective so um now how did you what changed for you when you're here you are working uh, let's see it's like upstate new york you're you're working for a company doing laser uh, research and uh, I, I recall you saying that you you made a breakthrough in uh, increasing the power of the laser and so your mind is very focused on physics but then something happened and you ended up getting into this ESP research how did that come about well I had a lifelong interest in ESP that all through high school and college I was reading the publications of the American Society for Psychical Research and the Parapsychology Foundation. So I was very familiar with what was going on, and I considered that a, an important field of research because it showed that a significant part of what we learned in graduate school in physics wasn't true. So I, I had a wife and three children, and I was responsible for sending them to school and paying the rent. And I was aware that most parapsychologists who are quite intelligent people, nice people, are also not making very much money. So I would go to parapsychology meetings, annual meetings, international meetings, and the big problem is how are we, how are we gonna pay the rent? Because parapsychologists are underpaid significantly and I didn't want to, I, I grew up during the depression that I was a kid in the late 1930s and I was aware of living in a family that didn't have any money. They didn't want to replicate that experiment. So I was not going to leave graduate school and go to ESP research, but I had the idea that I was going to be a pioneer in the development of the laser. I had that opportunity which I grabbed instead of being graduate school. And I was aware that after a certain period of time, I would be able to trade my laser cards for ESP cards and not, ha not be punished for going into a wacky field. So at, at the end of, in 1972, I had built a very powerful laser. So that, I don't know which, if you could, my camera appears to be on. I don't know if you, John, can see where I see what's on my wall, but I have a thousand watt picture of a thousand watt laser on my wall, which is the most powerful laser in the world at that time in 1972. And people were very interested in that. And we 
we're going to put it on airplanes and go out in the desert and blow up tin cans. We had lots of things to do with this laser. <laughs> Eventually, we were selling it to General Motors to heat treat locomotive cylinders. So 1,000 watt laser is really a big piece of hardware. Then my picture, I'm cutting, I'm drilling a hole or a fire brick. I did the, the demonstration for the army who couldn't believe we could make a 1,000 watt laser only one meter long, because theirs was 100 meters long. Oh. And they wanted to know what trick we had. And we were able to show them what we had done because we had published it, it wasn't the trick. We just, it was, I won't even go to it. It was, it was sort of an air conditioned laser. It meant that we could pour tremendous amounts of power into the thing without heating up the gas. And eventually that was very, very successful. And I then followed my path. I went to the CIA and to NASA who were already supporting my laser work and said, I have something new to do. You thought this other stuff was impossible. Let me show you what I do, what I do now. Mm. I have an ESP teaching machine, a device that offers feedback and reinforcement and will allow your agents at the CIA or your astronauts and the rocket to become more psychic. The CIA guy can be a better agent the astronaut could become more in touch with his spacecraft. And one of the So you're thinking I, if you, they lost communication, uh, an astronaut there up in the moon or, and they lose communication, they could communicate telepathically? Is that no, I had the idea that they could be in touch with their spacecraft. There, there was a major almost crash of Apollo 13 where a rock or a UFO or something hit the side of the spacecraft and they had a failure of a big oxygen tank. And it was only through the great skill of Neil Armstrong who was able to guide this twirling spacecraft and prevent a crash. And Werner von Braun was aware of that. It was a case of us astronaut being in super contact with the spacecraft and was able to prevent a disaster. And I had walked in to a meeting on speculative technology and got a chance to tell Werner von Braun that I had a gadget right here that will help you develop your psychic ability so you can be in touch with the spacecraft. And he would really be one of the few people in the world who would actually resonate with the uh, ridiculous thing that I was proposing and I showed him how this electronic gadget worked where there were four four colored buttons and four lights and you have to press the button that corresponds to the light that will illuminate and if you do that a bell will ring and now uh, let me interrupt here now now Werner came from Germany after the war he had been working on rockets over there and from what I know, the Germans were much more into ESP and metaphysics than our military was. Is that so? And like many high-level people, they had a, everybody has a psychic grandmother, which <laughs> indeed he had. She always knew when someone was going to be coming from another part of the country or when somebody was going to die. And he was quite aware that some people were psychic. So he was willing to grab my machine and see if he can make the bell ring. And indeed, he was prodigiously successful. As every time, your chances are one in four getting the ring the bell. And he again and again was ringing the bell and drew a crowd. And people were watching the great man here mm. really hitting the extra high marks, psychic medium oracle on my game. Wow. And he then took me to the administrator of NASA, James Fletcher, and said, Targir has built stuff for NASA before, built a high-power laser. I knew him at Redstone Arsenal. And he now wants to teach astronauts how to become in touch with their spacecraft. I think that's a good idea, said Werner von Braun. Hmm. 
Now, Fletcher, and, was he more of a uh, straight-up scientist, or did he have some interest in ESP and metaphysics? He was a straight-up scientist. My picture, I have a picture of him in a book that I just published, published book called Third Eye Spies, and Von Braun is there standing in front of his rockets, and Fletcher is standing in a, next to Richard Nixon. And that's sort of the way that they went. And I was only asking for $80,000. And Ron Brown said, that's not very much money. And he, he's at, uh, he, he's built stuff for us before. And they want to know, where am I going to do this? And I said, I had just met Hal Putoff, who's interested in psychic stuff. He's a Stanford Research Institute. And who should come along at that very moment but Edgar Mitchell, the astronaut, mm. who just started a program with SRI. And we know that Mitchell is interested in psychic stuff because he did an experiment from space where people were trying to guess ESP cards, which is a task that's significantly harder to do than what I was asking him to do. Now, do you know what Edgar... You say he was in contact with SRI to do a program. Do you know what that was exactly? What what was he doing? With a future scientist, he wanted to start his organization called the Institute of Noetic Sciences, yes. which looked at the spiritual part of human beings and do research on the spirit, the spiritual part of consciousness. Ah, and he had helped Will, Willis Harman who's a distinguished science Stanford professor, would head up the organization. And Mitchell agreed to take me to meet the president of SRI, Charlie Anderson. So Edgar Mitchell, Hal Putoff, another laser physicist, and I uh, met with Charlie Anderson. And with a promise from NASA for money, uh, Anderson said, okay, you can do an ESP program here. You just have to keep a low profile. And of course, we did everything but keep a low profile <laughs> because our first psychic who visited us was Uri Geller, who was interested in publicity and not at all interested in a low profile. Mm. Well, I'd like to bring in uh, our next guest uh, because I'd like her to chime in now and then. And... Uh, Add to the conversation. Uh, Elizabeth, let me give her a formal introduction here. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Brown is an internationally renowned causative diagnostician. In addition to private clients, she works to support doctors, dentists, clinics, therapists, and consultants in identifying causative factors behind illness, particularly cancer, skin conditions, all forms of allergies, ME, I'm not sure what that is, and sets of symptoms that have no orthodox label. And you can read uh, the rest of Elizabeth's uh, bio here on, on the show page. Let me tell you how to get there. You go to our URL, the other side of midnight.com, and you scroll down and click on tonight's <coughs> banner, and that takes you to our show page. And you can see uh, the guest bios, and we also have images to share. You can see those as well. So, Elizabeth, welcome to the other side of midnight. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Uh, it's a, an honor, especially to, to meet Russell, <laughs> one of my heroes, I'm afraid, Russell. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I think that's fine because uh, he's a hero to a lot of us. And uh, so if you want to chime in, I, I want to continue with Richard. Uh, Richard, I want to continue with Russell. And uh, but if you if you want to add something to the conversation, go ahead. And then um, I want to spend more time with you during the, the second hour. So, Russell, if you'd like to continue, um you were just saying that you, uh, Edgar Mitchell, had just um, walked by. You're at NASA. You're presenting this idea to Jim Fletcher that you'd like to start this psychic program, and you can do it with Hal Putoff. And so along comes Ed, Edgar Mitchell, 
And then um, what happened next? What happened next is that I found myself with with Ingo Swan, who's not who's a prodigious psychic and art visionary artist, and he wasn't interested in card guessing or looking in the next room. He said, "If I want to look in the next room, I'll open the door." You guys are wasting my time. It's a trivialization of my ability. Why don't you go hide someplace in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I will describe what it looks like when you get there. So Ingo, with those few words, invented the idea of remote viewing. Well, he brought it back to the modern world because it started back with the Oracle of Delphi, if I'm not mistaken. That would that would be a, a good time, yes. The Oracle of Delphi uh, was able to describe what the uh, king of Persia was going to do at a later time in his palace. And the Oracle of Delphi described very accurately in poetic terms that the uh, king of Persia would be slaughtering a lamb and a turtle and cooking them together in a brass pot with a brass lid. And he told that 100 days before the rest of the messengers could get back to verify it. So he was able to look what's going on contemporaneously, but many, many miles away. And the king of Persia gave the the Delphi priest organization a uh, hundred gold blocks, which uh, were seen by Herodotus. And he had them specially cast so there are pictures of these 100 gold blocks that they gift to the oracle because the king was so surprised and pleased that he found the real oracle. Now, but then over time, society lost interest or for whatever reason, and then you fast forward to today, and you have Ingo Swan come along and just reignite everything, right? That's right. Ingo's one reignited it. And the fact that we were at SRI, we're, we had Stanford for our first name, and we had CIA for our second name, and we had lots of money. So the reason that we got good publicity rather than bad publicity is that we're a wealthy organization supported by the government. And that's the first time that ever happened in the ESP arena. And the other thing that we were doing correctly uh, in uh, Duke University, JB got Ryan with having people guessing cards, which is a very hard task to do because once you know what the cards are, circle, square, stars, wavy lines, the memory of those images stands as noise in your mind. If I, if I tell you, for example, if I tell you I got a playing card in my hand, hearts, diamond, spades, or clubs, what do you see? Well, you, you, you're for, totally familiar from a lifetime of seeing playing cards. And the image from your memory of those playing cards are noise in your channel. So we have to design, do design experiments that make it easy for the psychic to separate the psychic signal from the mental noise. And the idea of mental noise was a contribution that Ingo made. People from time to time would discover that. The first person to talk about mental noise was the uh, Hindu guru, Padmasambhava, who talked about the things that, he says that your nature is timeless awareness. And if you want to experience consciousness out into the spatial temporal regions, you have to give up your desire to name things and grasp onto them. You have to quiet your mind and experience them. So, and he wrote a book called Self-Liberation Through Seeing with Naked Awareness. Self-Liberation Through Seeing with Naked Awareness was written 1200 years ago. Sounds like a contemporary novel on how to be psychic, 
and I, I'm I'm an author of many books, and I'm always happy to see somebody's book written 1,200 years ago is still in print. Yeah. That's, re that's really encouraging for an author. <laughs> so, so what we were doing at SRI is we were not having people guest cards. The setup we had, which uh, with Ingo's help, of course, is that uh, my, my job was an interviewer. I was not pretending to be psychic, and they didn't want me to be part of the experiment in any psychic aspect. I would sit down with a customer often from the government, and they would come if, and they wanted to see something psychic. What they had in mind is that Ingo would just do something psychic, like Ingo would describe where their partner is hiding. And I said that if Ingo does a trick, you'll think it's a magic trick, and you'll go back to Washington and try and figure out how he fooled you. But instead, I want your major to go off with hell put off someplace, and you'll randomly choose a target from a pool of 60 targets, and they will go and hide someplace. In a half an hour, uh, I will help you to experience where they are. Now, I don't know what these targets are, but I want I will help you quiet your mind and tell me about the surprising images that show up in your awareness. I'm not asking you to name the place because that's impossible, basically. Na naming is a source of noise. I just want you to quiet your mind and tell me what you're experiencing about the place. And that turned out to be a particularly good algorithm for helping people to describe it, right, people right up to the Undersecretary of Defense came to our laboratory, was thinking about having us teach people in Army intelligence how to look into the distance, look into the future, and he wanted to see something psychic before he gave us a million dollars a year to do that. Now this was this is the political side of it. You got into it strictly for the interest in the metaphysical side, but of course the government uh, understands that Russia is farther ahead of us in this field. So, of so they believed. My contribution is that I found an algorithm, which <clears throat> in which. Most people could demonstrate psychic abilities to everybody's agreement that we could publish the findings. That is, what we were doing different is that we were not showing, if somebody comes to our laboratory and says, show me something psychic, and Ingo Swan describes the, the object in the box or the object in the briefcase, they'll think it's a trick. But if I tell, tell him <clears throat> that remote viewing is really very easy, it allows you to look into the distance, look into the future, and describe what you see, what you're experiencing. And you don't have to uh, eat porridge at the feet of your guru. You don't have to do anything special. You just have to quiet your mind and look for the surprising image that will come to your mind with regard to where somebody is hidden, and they could be hidden in Soviet Siberia, or they could be hidden down the street in Menlo Park, California. Well, I think that would have been would have been very apparent when you went to teach. You picked out, you were in a gymnasium, and they said pick out some some of our army people for your program, and one of those people was Joe McMonagall, who, as far as I know was not into psychic stuff. He wasn't a medium. He wasn't any, he was a hardcore soldier. I mean, this guy was on the front lines. He's like the scout. Um, just amazing life in, in the military. And then you come into the gymnasium and out of nowhere, you pick these people. And as it turns out, Joe McMonagall was very psychic. Yeah, he's probably the most successful remote viewer alive today. Now, I didn't pick them out at random. I interviewed them, and Joe admitted to having all sorts of psychic experiences in Vietnam. He said he got off of his plane 
when he first arrived and he saw in the distance a big yellow plane similar to the one he just got off <clears throat> and nine months later <coughs> excuse me nine months later when he left Vietnam there was an Air America plane painted yellow which took him back to the United States <clears throat> so he was seeing into the future and he was seeing into the future quite reliably So he was the first one I chose for our <clears throat> program. And so we went up to our laboratory and I said, well, Hal has gone to hide someplace with your major, Scotty Watt. I have no idea where they've gone. And, and he said, well, I certainly don't know how to do this. I said, it's very easy. If you just do what I tell you, everything is going to be all right. So in a certain sense, I'm still doing magic tricks. It allows mm. to set the stage so that people realize that I'm not testing their ESP. In Duke, at Duke, uh, J.B. Ryan did a lot of successful experiments and was the father of ESP in America, but he was testing ESP, and people weren't aware that they're in some kind of testing situation. Uh, I was aware that that's not a good idea. So when Joe sits down with me, I say, we're, we're, we know that you're of psychic ability. Everybody has psychic ability. You may have a little more than other people. <clears throat> All I want you to do is quiet your mind and tell me where Scotty Watt is hiding now. He's in an interesting place. San Francisco is full of waterways, bridges, bowling alleys police stations, everything you'd imagine, a very target-rich, wonderful environment. <clears throat> just tell me what kind of thing, don't name it, just what are you experiencing with regard to where he is? So, excuse <clears throat> me if I can interrupt here. I'm just wondering, because today we have people that do past life regressions and they use hypnotherapy. Do you think you were... Uh, unconsciously hypnotizing Joe and these other people, or you're just giving them some guidance? Well, we really don't know what hypnosis is that well. I was, <clears throat> I was definitely setting the stage for success. So before he opened his mouth, I had convinced him that the things he was going to say would be successful. Mm. And that made it that makes it much easier for him to describe this. The remote viewing, we're always, in our, in our principal successes, we, we did do things like looking at Soviet weapons factory in Siberia, which paid our rent for another two decades, where Pat Price, with a psychic policeman, would remarkably accurately describe a weapons factory and a giant crane and other things which were verified later by aerial surveillance. Can, can you take a moment to tell us about the Patty Hearst incident and Pat Price's role in that? Well, let me wind up with Joe first. Sure. So, so Joe, so Joe said, "Well, what I see is a building, uh, say, long building with pillars in front. As pillars are white pillars, and it's dark behind them." And it looked like the fountain in front of the building, a tall portion in front with the pillars, and a long portion behind it. And that's what I get. And he drew a picture of that. And what's nice about working with Joe is he's an excellent uh, graphic artist. So he drew quite a nice picture of what turned out to be the Stanford, Stanford University Art Museum, which is exactly a long, low building with pillars in front and a fountain in the front of that. So he he basically made a drawing better than most people could do if they were standing in front of the building. Did he draw when he was in Vietnam? Would he sit there and sketch? Did he ever mention that? No, I, I think that, the, I think that, not to the best of my knowledge, I never heard of him say anything like that. I think that he was a, I mean, he became a, se a senior warrant officer 
And I think he was in very active duty. I don't think he was drawing pictures, to the best of my knowledge. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he has a innate talent. Um, he, in all the work we did, he was able to draw from his imagination, or his psychic sense, much more accurately than most people could do standing in front of the building. Mm. I mean, he was a spectacularly accurate in that sense. Now, I should say, to wind up with the Army, I chose six people, Hal and I chose six people, and each of them did six trials. So you would expect if they were matched against real targets, by luck, you would get a one out of six first place matches. That if the guy drew six pictures and there were six possible locations, and I ask you to match his pictures against the real places, and you said, I'm going to match this one against all of the others, then you get one right by force. So instead of getting one right from the six people, so you'd expect with six people, you get six, six right by chance. We got 19 right by chance, which are odds of one in a million, which is to say we chose six people off the floor of the gymnasium and they did an ESP experiment with 36 trials significant of odds of one in a million. Do you recall what the other interviews were like? I'm just wondering how the interviews went when that made you decide, yes, this person is psychic. What are some of the points of discussion that alerted you to the fact that this person might have psychic abilities? People would always begin some sentence, well, I always, something or other, I always knew when somebody was going to die. I always... um, had some information. See, I, I can't remember. This is now 50 years ago. This is now 50 years ago. So. Well, there was sure. one character, um, I can't think of his name, but uh, you asked him what his qualifications were. He was a scientist, I believe. And he said, I was a demon outfielder. Oh, yeah. He, he was, yeah, he was not an army guy. <laughs> <clears throat> That's Gary Langford. Oh yeah, uh, he, he was a SRI engineer and Lockheed engineer at the time I was at Lockheed. So Gary, Gary was a straight up scientist, and nobody knew he had anything to do with ESP. But he came into our lab and said, "You know, I've, I've been interested in this all my life." And I said, "Well, what what have you have you ever done anything? Have you ever had any psychic experiences?" He said, well, in high school, uh, I was a baseball outfielder. They put me in the outfield because I always knew where the ball was going to be hit. So a very successful outfielder. So, so, that's, so his success as an outfielder is what got him into our program. And later on, I was released from the lab where I I know I spent I basically spent a, a decade sitting at a table in the laboratory interviewing people. But after a certain period, I was released and I could travel around America and people in the lab would have to describe where I was. And Gary gave a remarkably accurate description when I was at the New Orleans Superdome. He said I see, he drew a uh, circular building with a dome and a parking space all around it. And it looks like a, he said, it looks like a flying saucer shining in the sun. And uh, he said to the interviewer, Elizabeth Rauscher, another physicist, do you think Russell's been abducted? And Elizabeth said, well, you can never tell. Why don't you just describe what you see and we'll see if he comes back. And his drawing, again, very greatly resembles the photographs that I was able to take of the Superdome in New Orleans, which unfortunately is one of these things where the outbound experiment, you wonder how could an outbound experiment screw up the experimenter while all he's doing is standing in front of a building. 
Well, the way I screwed up this particular experiment is that it was at noon in New Orleans, and I looked at this giant circular building with a dome, and I said, it's 12 o'clock, I'm standing in front of the New Orleans Superdome, and this looks like nothing so much as a UFO shining in the new day, noonday sun. I thought it was a nice pictorial way of describing unambiguously what I was looking at. And Gary essentially repeated my exact words huh. into his tape recorder when he was describing where I was. Oh, so you were audio recording these sessions too. Oh, yes. Every, everything was audio recorded. Do any of those audio recordings still exist to this day that you know of? Well, you, you can't see me on video. I was turning over to my closet where I have a whole bunch of audio tapes uh, st still exist in my possession. Wow. Hmm. Okay. In our, so in our, we, just made a, we just made a film called Third Eye Spies where we recapitulated an experiment we did with Hella Hammond. Hella was a brought in, hello, with a dear friend of ours, a talented photographer, lovely, highly intelligent refugee from Germany. And uh, we were, the CIA wanted, we had done, done, we had done experiments with Pat Price, who was a very psychic policeman, and Ingo Swan, who was a very psychic artist, and Kit Green, who was our CIA contract monitor, that I'd like you to find somebody who's never done this before, find a control person. And I asked Hella if she would like to be a psychic for the CIA and be paid to come to SRI to hang out with me and my family. And she thought that would be a hilarious thing to add to her repertoire of ways <laughs> that she's earned a living. And she came up to SRI and I showed her what we were doing. And in words of one syllable, she was the most statistically significant person ever to do remote viewing in our laboratory. So we brought in a psychic who had never done this, didn't know anything about remote viewing, was not a hidden psychic as far as she knew, but she totally understood what to do. And day after day, she would exactly describe, and she could draw. Now, now Pat Price, um, because today, using psychics to help police find a kidnapped victim or that kind of thing is, is more common, but in the 1970s, it was fairly unheard of, and here we have Pat Price, um, What's the story of him and uh, the kidnap? There was this famous kidnapping of Patty Hearst back in the 70s, and they end up coming to... Did they come to you to ask for Pat Price's help, or how well, did he... They, they came to the director of president of SRI. Mm -hmm. Now, Pat had heard about our work, even though it was a secret program, and I have I never learned how he heard about our work. This is sort of a Scientology connection. Uh, Hal put off my colleague was a Scientologist and Pat Price was a Scientologist. And, and so were some others. I was not, of course, Scientologist. Um, but Pat somehow learned what we were doing and volunteered <clears throat> to take part in the program and to digress, what he what he took part in was describing a building that Kit Green at the CIA gave us as a target. And the building uh, the price described was adjacent to Kit's building with a NSA listening post where they were listening to Soviet messages bounced off the moon. Hmm. And it was a secret listening post from the NSA, one of the most secret things in all of America at that time. And Pat Price 
drew a map of what that looked like, given nothing to go on except the coordinates of the place. And he said, well, the real business is in the basement. And he then read off the name of the program and a number of other code words pertaining to what was going on in the basement. And those code words turned out to be correct and top secret. So in my film, the, the reason that I made a film is that Kit Green and our other contract monitor, Ken Kress, agreed to be on camera saying, yes, Price was able to describe top secret current programs in the basement of the NSA, not known to any other person. And that was the greatest bona fides that we could ever get for our program. That Price was actually, Price was the only person we know who was able to read things, let alone top secret code words. So I'm guessing he somehow, before he met you and got involved with the program, he must have psychically uncovered this secret uh, project you had going at SRI and then contacted you or this kind of thing. Well, he came to us with a scrapbook full of pictures and stories of his psychic prowess. He was police commissioner in the city of Burbank, and he was very successful using his psychic prowess to find uh, criminals that they would run away. He would be able to tell, send the squad car through the streets of Burbank to find a frightened man running away. And he did that very successfully. And he laid out the scrapbook of successes when he came to SRI. And uh, Hell, then, my colleague Hell put up, then gave him the coordinates of whatever it was Kit Green was looking for. And Price then went home and wrote us a long monograph about what's going on at this place is a secret government facility with roll-up doors, jeeps, large antennas, and in the basement, they had this top secret program going on. So what he revealed was so secret that the NSA went back to CIA and collared our friend Kit Green and said, what the hell are you doing sending these psychics in the most secret part of American intelligence? And we then had a visit from these angry NSA people <laughs> together with the CIA people. And the NSA guy turned to Pat Price and said, you didn't even describe what he, the target he had. You described our place, which next next door. Well, why did you pick our place? He said, Pratt, you don't know, Price said, you don't understand how ESP works. In the psychic world, the more attention you have on hiding something, the more it shines like a beacon in psychic space. Mm. Very interesting. So then how did he, was he still working as a police officer and he's working at SRI and then no, he got hired? We hired him away. He, we immediately hired him. He was full-time with us for the next two years. And then how did Patty Hearst uh, get, how did he get involved with that case? Well, that would be 1974. You're stretching me back probably in, I'm going to make early, early 74, maybe March of 1974, I'm going to guess, is where Patty Hearst was kidnapped from her her apartment near Berkeley University, where she was a student. And nobody had any clues at all. Just a bunch of gangsters showed up with their automatic weapons and carried, beat up her boyfriend and sh shot up the place and carried her away. And that was it, she disappeared. And the police were very upset, and her parents were upset. And this is the daughter of a very wealthy Hearst family, published the Examiner in San Francisco. Mm. And they called Charlie Anderson, who's head of SRI, and they they knew 
Now, I don't know how the Berkeley police knew that we had a secret program at SRI. That, that would be, nobody's ever asked me that exact question. I, I don't know. Well, so some people were aware. For example, we hired Charlie Tart, who was a distinguished uh, psychology professor at UC Davis. He's interested in altered states of consciousness and ESP. But in order to work for us, you had to have a security clearance, of course. Mm -hmm. So Charlie gave a list of distinguished people who could be visited uh, by the FBI to see if Charlie was an honorable person who could be trusted. But as a result of that, as will be obvious to anybody, is that you're revealing that Charlie Tart is going to work at SRI on some top secret program that probably has something to do with consciousness or ESP. Mm -hmm. So at least one channel that led to the uh, disclosure of our program was the CIA trying to give a clearance to Shirley Tart and other people. But I know that this happened to Shirley because we talked to people who were baffled by what, why is Charlie Tart getting a secret clearance at SRI? Was his mild-mannered guy interested in altered states of consciousness? What could he probably possibly be doing top secret at SRI? Yes. And then... So Pat Price drove with Hal Putoff and made the Berkeley police station and as soon as we walked in, Price said, I want to see your mug book, which is a big loose leaf binder full of pictures of the usual suspects. That is people they had collected or people who were in jail or people they were looking for. And Hal and I and two detectives and, and Price stood by a big oak table as Price turned the pages of this binder and it went page after page, and I put his finger on a guy and said, this is the ringleader, and his name was Donald DeVries, and there's also somebody named Wolf Lobo, and his, uh, there was also Willie Wolf who was involved. So they now knew, had the name of the, Donald DeVries, who had been incarcerated and escaped from a minimum security prison and was on the loose, but the police knew who he was. And eventually, DeVries made himself known as part of the Symbiolese Liberation Army, asking for food and money to feed the poor people of Oakland and Berkeley. So he surfaced and said that we've, we've, we've got the heiress here under in captivity, and if you ever want to see her again alive, we want to get want you to start to distribute. This is really a petition to uh, the uh, her family, the Hearst family, to bring out some of their millions of dollars to feed the poor people of Berkeley. Hmm. And of course, nobody ever heard of the Simeonese Liberation Army. And while the people, while people were looking for Symbia on the map, um, the police were having to find ways to get food out. And there was a there was a campaign, and people were being fed on the streets of Berkeley as a result of this kidnapping. Oh, I never heard but, that before. But Price said, "Well, uh, I don't know where she is right now." But I can tell you where the state, where the kidnap car is. They drove north on Highway 101, and they parked the station wagon across from a diner next to two tall gas storage tanks. And one of the detectives said, well, I know where that is. I lived up by Vallejo. And they sent a squad car up there and found the station wagon 
and there were still cartridges on the floor of the station wagon, so they knew that that was the so they knew that was the kidnap car. Though of course Patricia Hearst wasn't in it anymore. It took another year to find her, but Price was able unequivocally to find the kidnap car, and SRI was given a commendation for the Berkeley Police Department for having been a significant contribution. Price was able to provide the first piece of hard data linking any people or a vehicle to the kidnapping. Yes, and uh, we have about four minutes to the top of the hour. Um, now, Price, at this time, he is looked at as this wonderful psychic who is helping the police and and doing good for humanity. But then things change over time, and he becomes something, as he starts working for the CIA, it's like he was now regarded as somebody to, somebody to be feared because of his power to see, you know, around the world. Yeah, I, w I wouldn't say that that happened to Price. <clears throat> All of the people in the program <clears throat> well, we're all the all the great psychics were eager to not be unique. They didn't want to be uh, fingered. So we tried to make it clear that we had several dozen people who were able to look into the distance, look into the future with great accuracy. Price with Price and Ingo Swan and Hella were probably the most reliable and significant of those people. Price, right after the Patricia Hearst case, Price was convinced by the CIA to leave SRI and move to Virginia and be on the payroll of the CIA full-time to be a contracted, contracted uh, psychic, spy, psychic spy for the CIA. Mm -hmm. So I saw him only one time after he left SRI, and he was in his farmer outfit, bib top overalls and a rake in his hand, <laughs> pretending to be a farmer. And by day, he would be over at headquarters uh, looking at Libyan and Russian China in China. And, and he did that very successfully. But, but people were not... A, People were, were not afraid of the psychic prowess of Price or anyway. None of our people were involved in dodgy or unsavory activities. We were spying on the Russians, which was considered an honorable thing to be doing in 1974. Yes. All right, we have to leave it there. Uh, let's pick it up. On the other side of the break with uh, Pat Price uh, living on his farm in Virginia there. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight.com with Richard Hoagland. My name is Jonathan Womack. We'll be back after this short break. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say 
We really need you. We really need you. Over and out.